Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hey there. Welcome to the CPS Podcast. This is Dr. Ross Green coming to you from Lives in the Balance. Today we have a special program called Voices of the Neurodivergent Community, What We Need You to Know. Very important topic, and to help me out here, I'm joined by Jenny Hunt, who is a published multidisciplinary researcher that focuses on medicine, medical law, and ethics. Recently, they shifted their interest to neurodiversity and go by the online name Autistic Scientist. That's S-I-G-H-E-N-T-I-S-T. Jenny, welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm not only glad to have you here, but also glad that we are covering this topic. Um, I'm going to jump right in uh, to get the ball rolling here. Um, You identify as neurodivergent. For those who are unfamiliar with the term or would like to know more, what does that mean? So neurodivergent or neurodiversity too, uh, to me means that, well, first I would start saying that it's neurodiversity is not a diagnostic term. Uh, it's a word for everyone that describes a state of being. Uh, I think this is important because being introspective about who we are doesn't take away any services or anything really from anyone else. So neurodivergent is a wide, all-encompassing umbrella for all the ways that our brains differ from each other, uh, not diverging from some standard of hypothetical normal is my preferred definition of the word. So if you wanted to figure out like, oh, what kind of neurodivergent I am, that's where DSM terms or ICD terms kind of come into play to find your specific neurodiversity. But other than that, I think neurodiversity is a very broad word used for everybody. And what, makes you neurodivergent what brought you to that realm and what experiences have you had in life that caused you to feel that neurodivergent described you well well okay back in the day i did get a childhood diagnosis of adhd which is a neurotype and uh, I it was a pretty good label for the most part. I didn't fully understood what it meant because I was still a kid and everything like that. But um, I did know I was a little different from other kids. I knew I needed some accommodations in school. But I was also in the gifted and talented program, which was kind of confusing for me having 
both a need for some assistance as well as like showing some over the top kind of skills that I didn't quite really understand, like why have so much of some but not quite the others. And so I noticed that there was kind of fractaling in my learning that I didn't quite understand because I would be advanced in some topics and not so much in the other. Um, and uh, throughout my childhood, I also developed things like trauma, which is an acquired neurodiversity. So I do have trauma as well <laughs> and a few other things going on uh, from that. But uh, for the longest time, I didn't know that another word to describe my neuro neurotype was also autistic until later on in life um, when I started getting really burnt out and I knew that there were things going on that were out of my control. And I wanted to look more into that. So I got a full neuropsych assessment and learned more levels after that. Um, but that is kind of where I came into the realm for myself. But still, I was pretty disconnected from the community. I had no clue that there was an ADHD community of people online or other neurotypes, like online specifically, because not a lot of doctors or really anyone really talks about what it's like living with these things on a day-to-day -day basis until neurodivergent people really went online and put it all out there for everyone to see. And that's kind of where a lot of neurodiversity education takes place online as well as just disability education because both of those are so intersectionally related but um those were some things that really got me into learning about neurodiversity for myself and now that you've learned about it what do you think people should know when they're first learning about neurodiversity and the neurodiversity paradigm Ooh, that's good. Um, when first learning about the neurodiversity paradigm, I think it's important to know like four core things. One of them being that neurodivergent kids come from neurodivergent parents. It is super common for parents of neurodivergent kids to get a late diagnosis or to even self-diagnose once they learn about their kids. Um, a second thing is I think it's best advice to learn about how to cater to neurodivergent people, that is going to come specifically from neurodivergent people with the lived experience. They're the primary sources to their experience, so they know how to live with it, deal with it, cope with it the best. So if you really want to understand how to help people through it, that's the route. Um, a third point that I think is important is that understanding neurodivergence means that recognizing the can'ts versus the won'ts and being empathetic to that reality. Some can'ts are temporary and some aren't, and that's okay. <laughs> but it's knowing that we won't be kids forever and how we, end, uh, how we are as kids has no real bearing on how we end up as adults given the capacity to grow and change. And then the last point I think is really important if you're first learning about neurodiversity, that language is very important to the neurodivergent community. So there's a lot of important vocabulary that you'll be learning by spending time in neurodivergent-ran spaces. Uh, I, there are important phrases like ones that I mentioned, like intersectionality or uh, the double empathy problem. That provides so much context for our lenses because language and accessibility really go hand in hand. So um, language is important in a lot of spaces these days. 
Um, can you say a little bit more about the terminology that you just used and why language is so important to the neurodiversity community? A lot um, being described accurately, being referred to accurately. Why is that being understood? Why is that so important? Oh, yeah. Well, I do think referring to people the way that they prefer to be referred to is just a basic sign, I think, of respect. Because if someone's saying, I prefer to be referred to like this, and you choose to not refer to them as that after the fact, I don't really see how that's much different from bullying. Because if someone's saying, I prefer this, talk to me like this or call me this, and that's a sign of respect to me, I think that's fair. Um, so I do see how language can be really important to neurodivergent people in that regard as well. But terms like intersectionality, uh, intersectionality has to do with the interconnectedness of all these things. Like, how are they all related? What do they have in common? And what, like, sometimes even seemingly unrelated things like neurodiversity and disability, they really, really go together because so many neurodivergent people are also disabled. So many disabled people are also neurodivergent because it's kind of hard to be disabled in this day and age and not develop some form of trauma as well. So that's where a lot of disabled people also end up being neurodivergent. So disability rights are also neurodiversity rights. Um, the double empathy problem, if anyone's very curious on how to quickly understand uh, what the double empathy problem is, I highly encourage looking up NeuroWild and looking up their graphic on the double empathy problem where they do a comparison between squirrels and beavers, where squirrels can live their whole life speaking fluent squirrel and being great. Beavers can live their whole lives speaking beaver and being perfect. But once you put the two together, they have some communicational issues. That's neither of their fault, but it's, it's on both of them to work through it. And I think it's really important for people who aren't disabled to recognize their part in communication flubs instead of always putting the burden on disabled people to bridge that gap. Along those lines, um, I have grown familiar with the fact that neurodivergent people don't like being referred to or judged against or referenced against a neurotypical reference point. Um, mm -hmm. That may be foreign language for many people. Can you explain that and why that's so important? Oh, yeah. Uh, easy. Uh, I think a good way to explain that, too, is you can – we can use disability as an example here because if you didn't spend your whole life needing to use a wheelchair, you might perceive wheelchair users as being wheelchair bound and like that's a terrible thing. But in reality, if you're a wheelchair user, that's, that's your freedom. That's your ability to go everywhere. That's how you can get to the places that you need to. And having the comparison of, oh, you must walk there in order for it to count. Or even let's use books and audiobooks. If you're listening to an audiobook, it doesn't count as reading. Um, that's what humans did for a lot, large portion of history. So reading individually is pretty new. Um, and I do perceive people who listen to audiobooks as reading. They're getting the information just the same. So I really think it's having our lens tied on. 
what do we think these words mean? What can they mean more inclusively? And how can we broadly apply them to all ways of being human, regardless of age and regardless of ability? Jenny, you are extraordinary at explaining all these things for our listeners. Let me ask a question slightly off script, not that we're using the script here, but um, where has the neurodivergent community been all this time? Why are members of the neurodivergent community being so vocal now? Um, What can you say about that? Okay, I think this is due to what I like to call us being in the age of information. Everything is online, not uh, things that aren't said in the media, people can put on Facebook. And all this information can be available on the internet. And I believe a lot of the time that disabled people and neurodivergent people have had to be quiet about a lot of the things that they're dealing with due to social shaming, fear, and a lot of the ways that society thinks to handle people that they perceive as a problem. And so because of this, a lot of neurodivergent people have had to be really quiet about their struggles and what they're going through. But now in the age of information, with the pandemic going on and more accessibility being offered in the workplace because no one wants to get sick, um, because of all these things, more of the conversation coming out is people expressing their needs that weren't loudly expressed before. And so I believe neurodivergent people have always been here. We just haven't always been loud about what we're going through because a lot of people face something called masking, which is how they hide neurodivergent traits. It's how they try to protect themselves from a lot of unfair treatment from other people who just don't understand. And it's so hard because a lot of it really is a lack of understanding, which causes people to Lottie and how they treat others, which is why I think it's really important we shift our lens to not focusing on needing to understand the whole picture, to still be empathetic. We can show care and show support without knowing the whole story first. Because sometimes if you don't have the lived experience, you might not understand what someone's going through, but you can still offer to be a shoulder to cry on. Now, you mentioned the word treatment. Um, the neurodivergent community has also been quite vocal, and we don't want to treat the neurodivergent community as if it is a monolith. So not all members of the neurodivergent community have been vocal about this, but when it comes to treatment, uh, some members of the neurodivergent community have been very vocal about how they do and do not want to be treated Can you talk a little bit about the do not want to be treated part? Um, And I'm not talking about sort of generically. I'm talking about treatments that are applied, especially to children, but also adults, Mm -hmm. that the neurodivergent community has taken exception to. I think a lot of the time parents, like, will come in with, well, everyone, people do well when they can, uh, if they can. And a lot of the times uh, people will want to help their neurodivergent loved ones. But what ends up happening is they, oh, I'm so sorry, ADHD, and I'm having a tough morning. May you please repeat one more time the question to make sure I answer all aspects of it. Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm um, trying to be a little politically correct here, but the neurodivergent <laughs> community, some members of it, have been very vocal 
about certain mm-hmm. forms of treatment and how they feel they were harmed by those treatments. Um, speak to that, if you would. Yes. So I myself have also experienced some treatment when I was younger, ADHD. Uh, I did grow up in a very privileged neighborhood that had access to resources that others would not have had access to. Um, And while all of that was good intentioned, unfortunately, a lot of how I was treated actually caused me a lot of problems later in life that I didn't understand. And let me explain how I was treated. I was in an after-school program with um, uh, the intention to hang out with my friend, uh, who was also in the after-school program. Uh, And I didn't understand that the teachers were seeing my ADHD traits, my autistic traits, uh, and they were perceiving it as an issue. And so to do favor to my parents, they felt it was in their best interest to target the behavior that they felt was a problem, me being more rowdy, me being a little uh, more outspoken, difficulty putting down for naps and things like that. And I was then given a behavior chart, which sounds very benign on the surface, but as a child, when you're receiving that and you're working with someone who you think is your friend, I thought that that's how friends are supposed to treat friends. I thought they're supposed to be critical of me, even if I'm having a bad day, because if they weren't, like, how else are they supposed to watch out for me? And I thought that they were protecting me from myself was essentially kind of the message that got through to me. And I didn't understand why they felt like I was so bad I needed that kind of protection from myself. It made me really look at myself in ways that I don't think a child should ever have to look at themselves. And I developed, like, my first self-harm thoughts in elementary school. And I don't think it was the adult's intention for that to be the case. But when you're using social shaming, when you're using group punishments, when you're using behavior charts, it's really hard for children to not take that personally When they see an adult have a bad day, they're having a bad day, they're being told they're acting up and will be punished for it. And I think the hardest part I had about all of this is my parents weren't being contacted by the school. They didn't know what was going on. I tried to explain to them what was going on, but I was a kid. So kids say the darndest things, I guess. Um, And it was hard to really have people support me through that process because they didn't think what was happening was a problem. So for me, a lot of the trauma that I have in childhood was less about the actions that were occurring to me and more had to do with the lack of support I received from loved ones when I was expressing that I didn't understand why I was being treated like this. Aren't all friends supposed to treat each other like this? And I didn't understand the relationship patterns that this treatment would create for me in the future And I didn't expect the trauma that would come from the people who wanted to take advantage of being, of me being taught to blindly obey orders. I didn't know that people like that would exist. I didn't know that people like that would want to hurt me like that. And then once that started coming out, I really questioned, do those people exist or am I truly the problem? Am I broken? And am I fundamentally, is there fundamentally something wrong with me? 
And so it, I needed to know that chronic illness isn't bad behavior. I needed to know that uh, I didn't deserve to be punished for experiencing pain that would cause me to act out. I didn't need to be excluded and pushed outside the like the classroom. But adults in those situations, they just feel like their hands are tied and that there's no way to really support me. But none of them really tried the empathetic approach. And had any of them really taken 20 minutes to really do that, I think that would have made such a big difference in my childhood. And I needed the par- my parents and the people who supported me to know that the ABA I went through, which is what was called Applied Behavioral Analysis, I needed to hear from them that I didn't need to be treated that way. And I also needed them to know that that's not how you help children who are explosive. That's not how you help children who are having a hard time. That's how you teach them that there's something wrong with them. So you just, I know that this is not so easy for you to talk about. Um, You just mentioned three words many members of the neurodivergent community um, don't favor. Mm -hmm. Um, Applied behavior analysis. Yes. Now, you talked a little bit about your own personal experience, but can you talk a little bit more about why so many members of the neurodivergent community have such a hard time with that field and those three words? Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, about that field, um, if anyone knows who the creator is, oh, Ivor Lavas. Ivor Lavas, if anyone knows what gay conversion therapy is, uh, he is the creator of gay conversion therapy. And around the same time, he was like, hey, uh, I can work with autistic kids. Why not have autistic conversion therapy? And created ABA on the exact same principles of uh, operant conditioning. And that's, I think, another piece a lot of people kind of misunderstand is it's teaching you that there is fundamentally something wrong with you that has to be conditioned out of you Um, when in reality a lot of the things that I was experiencing were sensory overwhelm chronic illness and uh, conditioning all that did was teach me to not listen to my body and now as an adult I deal with more flare-ups I deal with more issues that had I learned how to listen to my body and respect those needs could have been avoided I strongly believe and the neurodivergent community, I know a lot of issues with ABA. Um, I mean, it took the governing body, uh, if anyone wants to look up the exact number how long, to admit that there was issue with one of their centers using electric shocks on children that would cause burns. And I don't know about you, but if I'm having a bad day and I'm getting electrically shocked, that's going to make it a whole lot worse, not just for me, but for everyone else. So... I don't understand the logic other than if you hurt them enough, they'll stop doing the thing. Um, But that's not always the best goal. You want to figure out why are they doing this so that way I can help them meet the need instead of just changing out that reaction for a different one. So this is interesting because, um, of course, Applied behavior analysis is very widespread. New applied behavior analysts are being trained all the time. School systems in the United States 
but also other mm-hmm. places, uh, often have a board-certified behavior analyst guiding and directing how kids with differences are going to be treated in schools. But you're not just talking about um, shocking kids. You're talking mm-hmm. about not- practices that many people who are not so well-versed in this area would view as fairly benign, like sticker yeah. charts and like planned ignoring um, Educate them a little bit, if you would. Oh, man. Uh, Sticker charts. The number that sticker charts did on me personally uh, is really complicated. Uh, I don't recommend them because I cannot express to people how soul-crushing it can feel when you are at your lowest low and the thing that's stopping you from hurting yourself is getting a free sticker. Like, it's not ideal. I'd rather learn self-soothing techniques. I would rather learn how to regulate my nervous system. But give me a sticker and I guess I'll stay for a week. And I don't think that's right, as well as planned ignoring. So planned ignoring, uh, that also did a number on me too, personally. Both those were used on me a lot. Um going, well, it gets someone to stop something. It's not always, that's not always the ideal outcome here. Because how did it get them to stop? Did it get them to stop because they feel shame? Did it get them to stop because they feel less than? Did it get them to stop because they feel broken? Like, why are you getting someone to stop? And it's a lot of understanding that the lack of intrinsic motivation I have now because of ADA that's been used on me in childhood. A lot of these problems I didn't even know were problems until I was learning about it as an adult because I didn't know I had trauma from ABA until I was hearing from other adults with ABA trauma and they're explaining, oh, I can't do this anymore because of this. And I'm like, wow, intersectionality, those are related. And then I start thinking about my own life And then I'm critically wondering, is this this because I'm broken or is this this because I'm missing something? Is there something that I just don't know that I need to be more empathetic to about myself? Now that I'm learning these things, I've had to unlearn so much of what ABA conditioned me to do. Um, I really don't think it's a big deal if a kid needs to bounce on a ball or walk around a classroom to pay attention to a teacher while that might be distracting for some kids, then those kids should sit closer to the front. There are ways to accommodate differing needs. But you just have to be ready to be flexible in order to change things up like that. Um, I think you've already answered this question. But, um, Mm -hmm. well, first of all, a comment. From a collaborative and proactive solutions perspective, and I know that's not our focal point here, but from a collaborative and proactive solutions perspective, neither ignoring nor a sticker gain or loss, Mm -hmm. nor any other form of reward, nor any form of punishment, so therefore not a detention, suspension, expulsion, paddling, restraint, or seclusion. No de-escalation is going to help anybody figure out what's making it hard for a child to meet a particular expectation um, that's causing their concerning behavior. None of those Mm -hmm. interventions 
will accomplish that very important feat. And that feat, of course, is the hallmark to having kids' voices be heard. We just heard you tell us, boy, among your greatest regrets of childhood is that not only was your voice not heard, people weren't, weren't really, in some instances, even asking. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the information that's golden. What's, what's getting in the way for this child? And it turns out that many of our most popular interventions, many of which derive from the applied behavior analytic tradition, um, don't help us get there, not even close. But take you in a slightly different direction. Given all that you've said so far, why is it important that there be a neurodiversity, quote-unquote, movement? So I think having a neurodiversity movement has been so important for so long because for many years there have been so many people who have been experiencing treatment that was not in their best interest because it didn't include what they needed themselves for their recovery. Prior to this point, I don't think a lot of neurodivergent people have been given this privilege. Um, I don't believe that there are, like, I, I do believe that there are many fundamental rights that neurodivergent advocates are fighting for on a regular basis. And I think that their fight is what makes this neurodiversity movement worth it. Because without this movement, these children are going to continue to experience trauma and not learn how to take care of themselves in adulthood because they're not going to learn how to love themselves they're not going to learn how to listen to themselves. And both of those things are so key in developing relationships with other people, other neurodivergent people. And a lot of us end up getting taken care of by neurodivergent people later in life because our parents won't be there forever. And I hear, I hear from a lot of parents, actually, especially of neurodivergent children, a lot of fear around what happens to my children when I'm gone. And it's just, it's so hard to hear that because the answer to that is get them in touch with their community, get them in touch with neurodivergent children who are very different from themselves. Because if you're having your non-speaker talk to non-speakers all the time, well, that's incredible. And I love that they're getting the community. Not all non-speakers are given the appropriate accommodations to really make it out in this world. And so they deserve like having support systems who are able to meet those needs and support them. Like I know of a house of autistics where there's a non-speaker that lives there and um, there are two other autistics. One of them works from home and is a full-time caregiver to the non-speaker. And the other one uh, is constantly at work and primarily, uh, primarily finances their house. But the three of them live together. They're all happy and great. And that would have never occurred had the non-speaker's family like, not allowed them to make friends that are different from themselves, that are in the same community. And so I do think it's so important that we just socially really focus on moving towards helping each other, supporting each other. Accommodation should be just a norm in society versus, well, what do I get out of it? I, I don't really believe in tit for tat like that. <laughs> So we can tell just based on the 30 minutes that you've been talking so eloquently that you have been down quite an interesting road and quite a (laughs) difficult road. Um, And you're not done yet. 
Uh, of course, none of us are done yet. Um, that's the journey of life. But um, I want to ask you a few questions about that journey that you've been on, especially as it relates to um, your parents and their <laughs> role in this journey, but not specific mm -hmm. to your parents. What's the most important advice you feel you could give to, and educators are next, by the way, but what's the most important advice you could give to parents of a neurodivergent child? What do you want them to know? No matter how de demand avoidant you might be, no matter what you're going through, first off, people do well if they can. Uh, and second off, um, be patient with that. Give yourself grace. But third, listen to the community uh, that your kids belong to. If the community says, odds are this will hurt, you might get lucky, but odds are this will hurt, that normally tends to mean that odds are it'll hurt. <laughs> and they're just looking out for a kid who might be going through something that they went through as kids that really hurt them. And there's just so much care to want to protect them from experiencing similar experiences. The community is watching out. I don't, I don't know if your guidance for educators would be any different, but what do you want to say to educators of kids who are neurodivergent? Educators, I know it's hard, and I know it may feel very confusing, but it's okay to give some kids different than others. If a kid needs more, then they need more. If another kid doesn't need more, then they don't. And it's okay to cater to differing needs. Equity is so important in the education space, in the workplace, in the world, versus equality. While, yes, equality is good, sure, we all get equal, but does that really make sense if someone needs more that everyone get equal? Their need isn't getting met. I, I think it's okay to address the need, and I think it's okay to be ready to be flexible, even if it seems counterintuitive. Just give kids a shot. They, they're, they're, the kids are good. Of course, it doesn't help that many of the initiatives that have come down the pike in education in the last 10 to 20 years yeah. have made it harder to be to individualize harder for classroom teachers to be flexible. Um, sounds Very like hard. that is exactly what the doctor did not order. Mm -hmm. But this, this journey that you've been on, um, now let's talk about you again. Um, <laughs> okay. What do you think is the most important thing you learned from the journey? What has been the most important part of the journey for you? Let's talk a little bit about your journey from child diagnosed with ADHD who had some differences, uh, reflecting back as an adult on how you were treated and not being so enthusiastic about that. What, what can you tell us about this journey that you've been on? Um, I would say that it's definitely been a lot of up and downs, a lot of confusion. I mean, I went so long with only half the roadmap to my life. So I guess uh, that might be the most important thing um, at this point in time at my life with where I'm at, that labels. Uh, for the most part, I like labels 
because I have multiple, like I'm autistic, I'm ADHD, I'm a donor-conceived person, I'm socially and physically disabled. Um, but there are times that labels aren't good, like when someone treats them like a box. For example, high and low functioning. Uh, I hear commonly in autistic spaces and neurodivergent spaces, and this really has shaped my perspective on this, and I've seen it occur in real life, that high functioning is commonly used to deny people support, whereas low functioning is used to justify denying someone agency simply due to their perceived functional mm -hmm. label for their neurotype. And I don't think that's what labels are for because they're all humans with names and feelings. Um, so for me personally, learning that I'm autistic, not that I'm high functioning, helped me understand that I have these problems that might crop up for me, and some have, some haven't, and I am able to accommodate them because I know that they commonly occur in my neurotype, whereas when I was only operating with the ADHD label, I really only had half the picture for what I was experiencing, and there was so much missing that I was like, "How is this doesn't seem to meet all of my needs, but I definitely have this. And so later in life, the more I learned, the more I learned about autism, the more I learned about neurodiversity, the more I recognized where trauma traits were coming up, trauma triggers, versus what was my born neurotype that I'm dealing with, versus like what is trauma related to being a donor-conceived person. All of these things were related in ways that I just didn't see for so long because I wasn't accommodating my needs. I was just... Keep, I was just grinding with the grind culture, which mm. caused me to miss a lot of what I needed to know. So, and you don't have to stick to one thing, but if you could change mm -hmm. one thing, going all the way back, what would it be? Or would you not change anything? Uh, oh, I would know. Uh, um, actually, that's mixed because... I would like to personally know for myself my neurotype, but with where my parents were at in their trauma journeys at that time, had they learned at that time, I worry with me being a child that they would have gotten a little too invested in the wrong crowds because my mom is a therapist um, and who is actually involved with um, a pretty high high-profile case involving uh, abuse in children. And it was very confusing for me that my mom was involved with such a case, yet there was also so many things that I experienced in childhood and childhood abuse that I tried to communicate to her. But unfortunately, the methods that she was taught prevented her from hearing me authentically. And I wish, had I known at the time, that my parents had also known better too and could have protected me from those things. It's just so difficult when you work in mental health and if that's your whole life of behaviorism is all I know, plan A centric is all I know, authority and parent imposed fixes are all I know, PBIS is all I know. Those mm. types of approaches really can make it impossible to show empathy when necessary because you're following the steps instead of being there and being present for what the person is going through. And so it, it depends. I wish I knew differently, but at the same time, had things been different, I worry about the path my parents would have gone down 
because they also need supports in this process because supports are not very widely given, which is why community support is so important right now. Goodness. Well, we only have a few minutes left here. I do have one more question. Um, I think so many people are going to be helped by your words and your wisdom, but do you view this as a human rights issue? I absolutely view our current treatment of neurodivergent of the neurodivergent community as a human rights issue. Kids are being electrocuted, restrained, secluded, outright outrightly abused and religiously exercised because their demon's name was autism. Like outside of those extremes, like kids are being deliberately taught that there's fundamentally something broken about them simply because they're different. I've expressed how I felt that way as well. Diverse kids with diverse needs deserve individualized care that addresses the individual specific needs, even though that's very hard to do right now. But I just, I don't want to keep hearing about non-speakers being denied their AAC device because someone else prefers they use mouth words. I believe that access to communication and safety are fundamental human rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness don't currently extend to the neurodivergent and otherwise disabled people. If it did, disabled people could get married without the fear of losing their disability benefits. Now that we know better, we need to find ways to deliberately do better by these populations in order to best support them because we don't need cartoonishly horrible experiences to have lasting trauma from the way that that we were taught to be growing up. I think we can all do better. Uh, Totally. And I am very grateful to you for being willing to uh, use your voice, not only on this program, but out there to educate people um, about this super important issue. I want to mention to people that... um, Voices of the Neurodivergent Community is going to be the focal point as well, not only of this edition of the CPS podcast, but of the Lives in the Balance Annual Summit, which now takes place in the spring every year. Uh, So in April 2024, we will dive even further into this topic. Um, Jenny, if people would like to get in touch with you, how should they do that? Thank you. Uh, You could look up Autistic Scientist on Facebook. You could look me up on AutisticScientist.org. Or you can email me at AutisticScientist at gmail.com. But please keep in mind, I am very burnt out. I Mm. probably will not be able to reply to everybody, but I do read everything. I incorporate everything. I include it all in what I'm doing. I consider it. So if you feel like I'm off, if you citations or anything lived experience i'm open i'm ready to hear it all just know if i don't respond do not take it personally i am burnt out and it is how i'm coping (laughs) (laughs) you can get burned out talking about this um oh yeah (laughs) takes a lot of energy um takes a lot of passion and don't forget if you're if you are trying to find jenny scientist in the world of jenny hunt is spelled s-i-g-h-e-n-t-i-s-t Jenny, once thank again, thank, thank you very much for doing this. Um, I once again think a lot of people are going to learn a lot from this edition of the CPS, pod, CPS podcast and have some eye-opening moments. So thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And for anyone else who's also listening, please be patient with yourself. Be empathetic to your, yourself. These things are hard. Supporting yourself and another life is so hard to do. 
So just be patient, give yourself grace, and I really appreciate everybody who's doing this work. Thank you so much for doing something different. Jenny, thank you. And uh, we're going to call it a day now for the CPS podcast. We'll be back again in December with another edition of the CPS podcast. You all take care. And if you celebrate Thanksgiving here in North America, we hope it's a good one for you. Take care, everybody. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.